Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's program, Pancreatic Disease, we'll take an in-depth look. Acute pancreatitis is an inflammatory condition of the pancreas that is painful and at times deadly. Diagnosis of pancreatic problems is often difficult and treatments are therefore delayed because of the organ is relatively inaccessible. Plus, we'll talk about improving your bone health. Calcium is the big mineral that we talk about. We need enough calcium in our system or else our body will take it from our bones. And a discussion of the newest edition of The Healing Muse. We get submissions from all around the globe. We pay particular attention to our central New York writers and artists. We like to feature them. But you will find in our journal every state represented and many, many countries. All that on our checkup from the neck up. And that's all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, we review the key steps to ensuring better bone health. And we get a preview of the newest issue of Upstate's literary journal, The Healing Muse, and meet one of its contributors. But first, an in-depth look at pancreatic disease. While diseases of the pancreas are on the rise, acute pancreatitis is one of the most frequent gastrointestinal causes for hospital admission in the United States. And chronic pancreatitis, although lower in incidence, significantly reduces a patient's quality of life. Lastly, pancreatic cancer is one of the top five causes of death from cancer in the U.S. Well, here to tell us more all about diseases of the pancreas are Dr. Nuri Osden. He's assistant professor of medicine and an interventional gastroenterologist at Upstate Medical University. He also serves as the medical director for the New York State chapter of the National Pancreas Foundation, and Jane Cross, the chair of the New York State chapter of the National Pancreas Foundation, who has battled pancreatic disease for the last 15 years. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much for coming in. Dr. Eisen, let me start with you. Let's do a quick overview of the various diseases of the pancreas. But before we do that, help us understand what the pancreas does for us in our body. Um, the pancreas is an organ in the upper abdomen. It is approximately six inches long and is located behind the stomach. The mainly uh, pancreas has two functions for our uh, uh, health system. It makes enzymes which help digest proteins, fats, and carbohydrates before they can be absorbed in the intestine. The other major function is just making hormones, the most important which is insulin, that controls how the body uses and stores sugar, which is our main source of energy. So when we talk about diseases of the pancreas, let's start with the one that's kind of um, maybe the least intrusive, but also um, seems to be very frequent, as I mentioned in the introduction, acute pancreatitis. What exactly is that? Acute pancreatitis is an inflammatory condition of the pancreas that is painful and at times deadly. Despite the great advances in the critical care medicine over the past 20 years, the mortality rate of acute pancreatitis has remained at about 10%. Diagnosis of pancreatic problems is often difficult, and treatments are therefore delayed because of the organ is relatively inaccessible. There are really no easy ways to see the pancreas directly without surgery, and available imaging studies are often inadequate. In addition to the acute form, there are hereditary and chronic forms of pancreatitis, which can, have a, uh, which can devastate a person over many years. Sufferers can uh, often endure pain and malnutrition are, and most likely left without a Uh, with a higher risk of pancreatic cancer in the long run. So it basically can lead to pancreatic cancer. So what, do we know what causes it? I mean, why does somebody get acute pancreatitis? Uh, Acute pancreatitis is mainly caused by uh, alcohol, uh, uh, heavy alcohol consumption and gallstones. Uh, But uh, there are also some causes of acute pancreatitis due to uh, some hereditary conditions due to underlying genetic factors or there might be an uh, abnormal uh, anatomy of the pancreatic ductal system, which we call pancreas divisum. 
So in other words, it can be something they've inherited, but more often it has to do with their alcohol consumption. Yeah, they can be exacerbated by alcohol, uh, tobacco use, and gallstones. How about chronic pancreatitis, which is something... So acute means it happens, it occurs, and it will resolve after some period of time. Is if that there's right? no underlying uh, genetic or uh, pancreatic uh, ductal anatomy abnormalities. So what? Ha so when someone does someone progress from acute to chronic, or what is the difference? What is chronic pancreatitis? What does that mean? Uh, chronic pancreatitis is uh, basically is that there's a chronic uh, condition. Uh, is a long-term uh, uh, inflammation, which leads to uh, fibrosis and a scar tissue formation, and also is a risk factor for pancreatic cancer in the long run. So in other words, the it's the same kind of condition as acute pancreatitis, but someone suffers from it repeatedly yeah, and repeated over longer yes. and longer periods of time. Repeated board of attacks. And what, I mean, what basically happens? You mentioned that the, the, there's a scarring of the pancreas, and does that basically make it malfunction or non-functional non eventually? Absolutely. It will affect uh, basically the uh, microenvironment at a cellular level and it will basically destroy the pancreas parenchyma and the ductal anatomy that will lead to uh, basically malabsorption and diabetes. So it can actually lead to actual diabetes when you wouldn't have had diabetes otherwise Absolutely. because the pancreas stops functioning, Absolutely. the insulin isn't being made, Absolutely. and therefore... And that's basically the uh, latest stage of the uh, inflammation and the fibrosis and scar tissue formation. Is that you then be basically end up with diabetes? Absolutely. But now, what is it the same... Are the same causes responsible for chronic pancreatitis as acute pancreatitis? In other words, is it the same issue about alcohol consumption, what are some of the causes? Yes, if, if you have uh, persistent alcohol and tobacco use and, uh, and if you have a genetic uh, abnormality and a pancreatic ductal anatomy uh, due to like a pancreas division, uh, you'll be prone to have a persistent inflammation. So somebody having, uh, for example, a heavy smoker or heavy drinker and also has an underlying genetic uh, deficiency, which the patient might not be aware, uh, their progression to disease is faster. But people know they have this because you mentioned pain. So do people with both acute and chronic pancreatitis suffer from pain? Yes, the pain, uh, uh, I would say 90, 95% of the patients will have pain, but some patients will might have just diarrhea or diabetes with, with having minimal pain. So what's being done to treat these conditions, both the acute and the chronic? Well, the acute pancreatitis, basically, if, they, uh, basically the, if the insulting factor is alcohol or tobacco uh, usage, uh, we usually tell the patients, you know, to abstain from those, uh, uh, basically uh, cut down on their alcohol and uh, tobacco intake. Or if they have a gallstone, we, we usually uh, proceed with the removal of the gallbladder. Uh, but if they have uh, underlying genetic uh, factors or uh, pancreatic ductal anatomy, uh, they might uh, be having persistent attacks. And the uh, only treatment is basically symptomatic. We basically, um, the most patients indeed will uh, treat uh, themselves at home rather than coming to the hospital because they know they've been having some attacks. And uh, But if they have uh, persistent pain, they will usually end up having uh, hospitalized. We usually basically uh, keep them in the hospital uh, for a couple of days. Sometimes that can uh, they can be admitted for weeks. Uh, basically, we uh, keep them uh, basically control their pain and uh, nutrition support uh, during the hospitalization. Uh, basically, there is no specific treatment for uh, medical treatment uh, for chronic pancreatitis uh, unless. Uh, uh, if they, I mean, uh, the only uh, basically ultimate treatment is islet uh, uh, cell transplantation. Islets, basically the pancreas islet transplantation, and that's something that I guess is starting to come to our area. But uh, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm Linda Cohen along with interventional gastroenterologist Dr. Nuri Osden and patient advocate Jane Cross, and we're talking about diseases of the pancreas and what can be done about them. So getting back to this. Basically, there is no frank treatment for it. Once the damage occurs to the pancreas, it's really life, a lifelong issue. Is that correct? That's correct. That's a progressive disease, and the scar tissue will never heal back. And uh, so 
uh, basically we it's really important to uh, diagnose the situation early and uh, be co- uh, basically upfront with the patient and basically and uh, offer the best ultimate treatment which is uh, islet cell transplantation islet cell transplantation but the truth is at this point it's also to get, if it's diagnosed early enough you can help them change their lifestyle some of the offending habits that people are doing, whether they're drinking too much or smoking too much. Jane, let me turn to you. Now, you have suffered from some pancreatic issues for a long time. Tell us about your story. I've had pancreatic issues for 15 years. Um, I had my gallbladder out when I was 18, and from there on, I woke up with pancreatitis. So for four years, um, I went undiagnosed. I had lots of different, you know, testing, and I was in the hospital a lot and all types of stuff. Um, And then they diagnosed um, pancreas divism, which is a congenital birth defect that causes um, chronic pancreatitis. I had three pancreatic surgeries over the years to correct um, the defect, and all of them had failed. And uh, now I am in chronic stage uh, pancreatitis. So I now have pain every day on a daily basis and along with, you know, other symptoms, as Austin stated, um, diarrhea and nausea and vomiting. And you are basically at this point handling it symptomatically, trying to con- basically make yourself comfortable and, and, you know, keep your nutrition up and all of that. Correct. So yep. obviously that is basically the, the state of the art at this point in time for chronic pancreatitis. Yes. Very briefly, I don't want to get into great detail, pancreatic cancer, which is always hovering over everyone's mind, and as I said, it seems to be seems to be on the rise, um, at this point is, is generally a silent disease until it is really potentially life-threatening. Am I correct? That's, that's, uh, that's right to the point. And... At this point, do we know anything more than, I mean, is the only way it can actually be, we can actually intervene is if it's an early diagnosis? Absolutely, that's right. And unfortunately, uh, in uh, industrialized countries, uh, also in uh, United States, um, we are quite late uh, diagnosing the pancreas cancer at an early stage, and most patients are metastatic when they come out, uh, present to our uh, clinics or to the hospital. And... Uh, uh, the, which is, the, I mean, the surgery is the ultimate treatment. Unfortunately, uh, less than 20% of patients uh, are uh, uh, cured? cured by uh, surgical uh, resection. And they have to basically remove the entire pancreas or part of the pancreas? How does that work? Uh, most of the time, it is a remote uh, segment that's involved. Uh, but there can be some rare occasions where uh, patients might require total removal of the pancreas, but this is, that's quite rare. Now, Jane, recently I, um, Upstate has been named the Na- National Pancreas Foundation Center for Care and Treatment of Pancreas Diseases. What does that mean? Tell us about that. So the uh, National Pancreas Foundation has been awarding these um, centers of excellence to facilities that have multidisciplinary areas to treat pancreatitis. So they have the services that really range across disciplines to try to Correct. support patients with pancreatic problems. Yep. So what, this des- what is this de- the significance of this designation? It's, it's great. You know, pe- a lot of people have a hard time being treated for this disease. Um, you know, not education, or, you know, undereducated, you know. Is it such now that people in our community don't have to travel long distances, Dr. Osden? Absolutely. And uh, we are the second, uh, uh, there are only two centers in, in New York State, and uh, one is in New York City. And uh, we are the only center in upstate and central New York that uh, is the premier facility that can provide a multidisciplinary approach to patients with uh, pancreatic disease. Indeed, this is a, a very stringent process. We had to go through an extensive audit process by the National Pancreas Foundation to be eligible uh, to be designated uh, as an MPF center. And there's going to be offered in the future, I understand, eyelid transplantation, pancreas eyelid transplantation coming 
Absolutely, down the road. and uh, with the uh, basically with the addition of uh, Dr. Reiner Grusner, who's the head of the uh, transplantation program at Alps State, he's been involved with uh, uh, cell transplantation for almost uh, three decades, and he's uh, probably he's the most experienced transplant cell transplant surgeons in the country, and uh, with his addition and. Uh, and the setting up of the Isle of we are planning to start Isle of Salt Transformation in uh, fall 2016 at Upstate. Wonderful. So, Jane, um, I, I really don't have much time, but your foundation is available. You're running different kinds of groups for people, support groups, that kind of thing. Yes. So how do people get a hold of you? Can we, can we link to a website? Yes. Uh, www.pancreasfoundation.org will bring you to the national website and from there, you can find our local chapters, any support groups, and a lot of um, information about the pancreas. Wonderful. Thank you so much, both of you, for coming in. My guests have been Dr. Nouri Azdin. He's a system professor of, of um, medicine and an interventional gastroenterologist at Upstate Medical University. And he's the medical director of the New York State chapter of the National Pancreas Foundation. And Jane Cross, the chair of the New York State chapter of the National Pancreas Foundation, who has also battled pancreatic disease. up next, the key steps to ensuring better bone health. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Upstate's HealthLink on air, Linda Cohen along with you. Worldwide, osteoporosis causes almost 9 million fractures annually, resulting in a rate of a fracture every three seconds. Well, these statistics are staggering, and they underscore the importance of understanding the ways to achieve better bone health at any age. Here with more on all of this is Karen Chemis. She's a doctor of physical therapy specializing in osteoporosis and falls prevention at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Karen. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Let's help us understand, to start, the difference between osteoporosis and osteopenia. Those terms are often thrown around. They are. Osteoporosis is when the bone density is low enough that it falls into the ranges that one would get the diagnosis of osteoporosis. Also, if somebody's had a fracture from low trauma or no trauma, that would give them the diagnosis of osteoporosis. And osteopenia is simply when the bone density is done and the levels are lower than normal, but not quite low enough to be at the point that they're considered osteoporotic. So you're suggesting that the diagnoses are dependent on some test that's done, a bone density test, that type of thing. But the question is, what's happening in the bones to make them basically begin to fail? I mean. It, there needs to be a certain amount of new bone laid down. Explain that. Yeah, so bone is constantly remodeling. We get new bone laid down, and some bone goes away. And unfortunately, as the years go on, there is more going away than being laid down. We need calcium and vitamin D to be able to have enough bone density. And what happens is over the years, the thickness of the bone decreases at a microscopic level, and there's little cross bridges, and they start to go away basically so that whole structure gets weaker and it makes us more at risk for fracture. So when you say osteopenia it's just a lesser form of the same basically the, the process of, of losing bone, losing more bone than you're building. Exactly. Exactly. So the bone density test would show that the bone density is lower, but again, not at the level that we'd say osteoporosis yet. So it's not as prone to fracture if you're osteopenic, perhaps, as you might be with osteoporosis. Exactly. Though if you look at the numbers, a lot of people do fracture at that osteopenia range. So it's really important to do the steps that we're going to talk about 
right away, you know, as soon as you know that you might have low bone density at any form. So you, uh, you know, kind of already alluded to the fact that as the years go by, so there are going to be factors that actually add to the likelihood that you might have osteoporosis or even osteopenia. Let's talk about what some of them are. Obviously, age being one. So you're not going to find osteoporosis generally in a 15-year-old, am I right? Absolutely. It's in, there's nothing you can do about it, but as the years go on, our bones get thinner. So by the time some in their 80s, their chance of osteoporosis is really high, even if nothing else is a risk factor. How about their sex? In other words, does gender determine your likelihood for osteoporosis? It does. So if we look in the United States, there's about 10 million people diagnosed with osteoporosis, 2 million are men, and 8 million are women. So being a female increases the risk by quite a bit. So do we understand why that is, in terms of why more women than men? Just men build stronger bone through their youth, um, just naturally. I mean, certainly there's a lot of things that can contribute, but all things being equal, men will build stronger, heavier bone than women, so women are always starting a little bit less in general. So they're at a disadvantage really from the beginning. Absolutely. But is it true that the bone that you lay down in your youth, so to speak, or your teenage years into adolescence is really kind of a factor in how you end up down the road? It's huge. So from you know childhood and adolescence, it's so important to lay down bone. We have an expression in this area that osteoporosis is a pediatric problem with geriatric consequences. Oh, very good Our point. Our best bone building years are th- really before we hit adolescence. We still have great opportunities up to about the age of 18. Then things flatten out from about 30 years old, they start to go downward. That's a very important point and a good timeline to keep in mind as we talk more about what you can do to build bone. How about family history? Does that play a role? Family history is huge, and we tend to think about our mothers or grandmothers, but it can be men or women in the family. So if I see a male with osteoporosis and nothing else suggests that they have a risk, oftentimes it's because they have some strong family history. But in general, family history is just huge. How about the size of a person, their body frame size? I mean, you sometimes hear that frailer or people who are thinner are more likely to have that problem and why would that be? Absolutely because our bones respond to the amount of stress placed on them so if we're medium or heavier build we're actually putting more stress on the bone and they'll become stronger. This is one time when maybe being a little heavier could be protective. Of course there's a lot of other health problems that go with that but somebody who's really petite isn't loading their bones and has a greater risk of having lower bone density or osteoporosis. How about the someone's race. In other words, are certain racial groups more likely to have osteoporosis versus others? Absolutely. Caucasian and Asian people are more likely, but you know, as we really look, we don't want to neglect other races because we certainly do see risks in other races, but primarily Caucasian and Asian. And we were talking about the gender differences. Do hormones play a role also? I mean, I think I've seen certain a lot of literature on this idea of postmenopausal women being more likely to have this problem. What role do the hormones play? Both estrogen and testosterone are important in building bone, and you mentioned postmenopausal. Through those years of the menopause, women lose quite a bit of bone fairly quickly, so we want to try to build up bone leading into that and try to maximize the bone through those years. What kind of dietary factors play a role, too? In other words, is your diet a crucial factor in your tendency either to develop osteoporosis or to avoid it? Yes, we need certain minerals and vitamins to build bone. So calcium is the big mineral that we talk about. We need enough calcium in our system or else our body will take it from our bones. But we can't use our calcium unless we have enough vitamin D available. So we have to make sure we get enough of that. And then the other really important thing is to just have enough good healthy foods. We need to be of a healthy weight, not too thin. So we need enough calories in general, and including protein, which is important in muscle and bone health. Now, when we talk about all the things you were just mentioning, it seems to me that your lifestyle choices also play a role. Because even if, as you said, larger people may have stronger bones, but it has also to do with how much you use your body. So is a sedentary lifestyle 
contributed something that might contribute to osteoporosis? Very much so. Our bone does respond by the stresses put on it. So if we're up and about and active and using our muscles in our bones, then they'll respond by being stronger. The more we sit, the less we put stress on the bones, and they're just not going to be as strong and healthy. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with physical therapist Karen Chemis. We're talking about osteoporosis and how to promote better bone health. One last point on, on lifestyle choices. How about issues of alcohol consumption or tobacco? What role do they play? Both negative for the bone. Alcohol, we've got a little wiggle room. A moderate amount of alcohol is acceptable, but more than two or three drinks a day is going to be too much. Two reasons for that. One is because if we're drinking more, we may be eating less well. And the other is alcohol increases our risk of a fall, and that's how most fractures occur. And smoking is always bad for the bone. So let's talk about how you build better bone health. I mean, obviously, you're born with the body you're born with. You can't choose what race you are. You can't choose what age you are. So what are the key recommendations? Let's start with things like um, diet specifically or food consumption, and then we'll get to the physical side. Yep, so sufficient calories to have a healthy body weight, and especially looking at calcium and vitamin D, and, and generally eating healthy with good protein, um, those will help to build strong bones. Let's talk about calcium and vitamin D. There's been a lot of talk about taking calcium versus having it as part of your diet. Is one superior to the other? Can you get enough calcium? Let's say you are on the verge of osteoporosis or you have osteoporosis. Should you be boosting the amount of calcium you take in and how, how best to do that? So we generally take in um, any of our vitamins and minerals best with food sources, so that's a great way to do it. So, But the problem is a lot of people can't or don't like to take in certain products that have calcium, people who are intolerant to dairy, for example. So it's nice to find out how much calcium you're getting. And there's, if you go online, there's some nice calculators where you can put typical high-calcium foods in and determine how much you get. And then they'll tell you how much you should get in a day. And if you're lacking, supplements will help. But calcium is a tough one because we also don't want too much. It can be harmful. So it's important. And that's a recent, excuse me for interrupting you, but that is a recent finding. I think at one time they were recommending a lot more calcium through supplement, and now they found that that can actually have some impact on the arteries? Or Right, because if we have too much, it can go to places we don't want it, for example, to create kidney stones and get to the arteries. So that's why it's great to figure out how much you're taking in naturally in your flu foods and fluids. You know, we have like orange juice that has calcium and vitamin D supplementation. Add that up and only supplement to the extent that's going to get you to the normal levels. So what is the normal level? What's recommended? For adult men and women, it's going to be around 1,000 to 1,200 milligrams per day in general. A little higher in teenagers, 1,300 milligrams a day. In kids, it's a little bit less. Now, how about the type of calcium? That's also been something that's been discussed in terms of supplements. This whole idea of what's most uh, efficiently used by the body or used at all? I mean, is it really important to have carbonate, calcium carbonate versus calcium citrate? Calcium carbonate is a little easier to get to. A lot of products, that supplements that we have have calcium carbonate, and it's a lot less expensive. There's a couple challenges with that. It needs acid in the belly in order to absorb well, so it should be taken with meals. The other challenge is a lot of people have gastric problems and constipation if they take it. So if that's the case, it's important to not stop taking a supplement, but that's a great time to try calcium citrate. Calcium citrate's always also better if somebody doesn't have acid in the stomach, like if somebody's taking an anti-acid medication, or people are of older age, over 80, have less acid naturally. So generally, calcium citrate is the easier to digest or the one that's easier Absolutely. overall. How about vitamin D? Is there a type of vitamin D, and how much do you need, and how do you know how much to take? Vitamin D is great because you can get a blood test that tells you how much you have in your system. So, And it's not like that with calcium. So you get the blood test done, find out where you are compared to what the suggested levels are, and then supplement accordingly. It is a little challenging to get vitamin D in our foods. Eel is pretty high in vitamin D. We don't tend to eat a lot of eel. But the supplements are inexpensive and easy to take. They can be taken any time of day. 
they're inexpensive, we're generally going to see vitamin D3 as a supplement, and that's what we're going to go with. So bottom line is you really want to watch the calcium and the vitamin D, both of which are very important. The vitamin D is what makes the calcium work, so to speak. Absolutely. And you want to check your levels and maybe discuss it with your healthcare provider as to what supplement you need to keep at that level within your blood. Yes. So let's get to the physical in the little bit of time we have left. What do you recommend in terms of daily exercise? How, what kind of exercise, and how do you prevent falls very quickly? Absolutely. So weight-bearing exercise is the most useful for the bones. So we should try to do walking, stair climbing, dancing, um, many exercises that put strain through the bone. Look at about 30 minutes most days of the week. And then fall prevention is very important. So we should test our balance. If we feel off balance, if we've fallen in the last year, that's a high risk. And we should do balance challenging activities. Sometimes a referral to physical therapy is going to be the best way to do that because you might not know what to do on your own. So ask your health care provider for a referral. Can you train yourself to have better balance even at an advanced age? You can, and I'm so glad you asked because I don't think people realize that. So if you feel like you're off balance, you don't move as well as you used to, you've had a fall in the past year, absolutely challenge your balance, get it better, prevent those falls. That's how we prevent fractures. And getting to a potential physical therapist to help you maybe learn some of those skills will be very, very important. Yes, it's not something we naturally know. Thank you so much, Karen. It's been so illuminating and helpful. Karen Chemist has been my guest. She's a doctor of physical therapy specializing in osteoporosis and falls prevention at Upstate Medical University. Thanks, Karen. Thank you. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up. How to talk with someone you suspect may have a drug or alcohol problem. Well, folks, looking back, one of the most painful tragedies of my life was started when I was in high school. Out of the blue, a good friend came to me and described a night of out-of-control, destructive drunkenness that could have landed him in jail or dead. Then he asked if I thought he could be alcoholic. Never having seen him drunk myself and knowing him in other situations where he looked fine to me and probably not wanting to believe that he, even younger than me, could be alcoholic, I said, no, I don't think so. He went on to 20-plus years of increasingly destructive drinking, car crashes, serious injuries, surgeries, DWIs, jail, lost jobs creating pain for himself and everyone around him that brought failed relationships, including cutting me off for over a decade for who knows why. If you think this is unusual, experts say 10% of us have a serious alcohol drug problem. Fact is, we often deny it in ourselves and others because maybe we feel scared and helpless about doing anything. But a few caring words can sometimes save someone's life and maybe even break a chain of addiction for that person's children and grandchildren. So get our courage up. Do a little homework about treatment options and have a heart-to-heart. When do you do this? The sooner the better, because substance abuse changes the brain itself, and it can be harder to quit over time. But not while the person is drunk or drugged. Unlikely they'll take in what you say then, could get angry and even become violent. That said, some people are hoping someone will speak up and help them find their way out of the hole. They are digging deeper and deeper and deeper. So wait until they're sober and say something like, you know I love you, and seems like your alcohol or drug use is making trouble for you, like yesterday when you passed out or had a fight with your wife or got fired or wrecked your car or got arrested. I'd like to help. I've got the names of some doctors and treatment centers that specialize in alcohol and drug problems. I'd be glad to go with you. It can be useful to put what you say into the context of what the person cares about. For example, I'm concerned about the impact of this drinking or drugs on your children, your relationships, your marriage, your career, your health. Long into the sinking storm of my friend's drinking, I said, 
I love you, but I have accepted there's nothing I can do to get you to stop. And now I'm sadly preparing myself for your funeral. Did saying that have any real impact? Who knows? He did stop rationalizing for a moment and appeared to hear me. Are there things to avoid saying or doing? Yes. Facing consequences is one of the best teachers, so don't agree to deny the dead seriousness of the addiction by lying about why he or she missed work again or arrived late for a court appearance or forgot to pick up the birthday cake and left their child heartbroken. And don't lend them your car or give them money when they've blown theirs. And for goodness sakes, don't put up with physical or emotional assault. Now, watching someone destroy their life can be dreadful. So take good care of yourself. You might go to Al-Anon or Alatine to meet people who know what you're going through. Locations and more are at aa.org or syracuseais.org. For more science-based info, check out the National Institute of Drug Abuse website at drugabuse.gov. Finally, be prepared for relapses. These problem behaviors get hardwired in the brain and can take time and multiple attempts to change. But millions have succeeded. Treatment helps, like my friend, who's been sober and much happier for decades. And we're back in touch. There's hope. Those websites are on our website, too. I'm Dr. Rich. Been there. Learned from that. O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in. up, a preview of the newest issue of Upstate's literary journal, The Healing Muse. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. The Healing Muse, Upstate's art and literary journal, is out with a new annual issue. And here to tell us more about this year's offerings are Deirdre Nealon, its editor, and Caitlin Chi. She's a fourth-year medical student here at Upstate Medical University. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having us, Linda. So Deirdre, I want to start with you for a second. Let's explain, and once again for our listeners, the mission and the goal of the Healing Muse publication. I love talking about the mission and the goal of the Healing Muse. As you know, this will be our 16th year of publication. We began as a place for dialogue. We wanted to have a place that would encourage, in particular, med students and physicians, and then nursing students and nurses, to write about the experiences that they have when they're working. And we found that the outpouring also came from patients. There were people who were caregivers of patients, and there were people who were patients that were thrilled to have a place where they, too, could write in a creative manner about their experiences in the hospital or the clinic. And so we've set up, I think, a really fun and fine journal with art, poetry, fiction, memoir, in which all these components of healthcare get a chance to say, I'm here, this is what I'm thinking, this is how I feel. And we find in our uh, classes with medical students and nursing students, they really enjoy talking about the particular pieces that we choose. But it sounds like it, that may have been the kind of the, uh, the origin was really very local, but yes. now it's expanded far beyond that, hasn't yes, it? Yes, yes. We're, we're a worldwide journal now. Thanks to the Internet, we get um, submissions from all around the globe. 
we pay particular attention to our central New York uh, writers and artists. We like to feature them. But you will find in our journal uh, every state represented and most, well, I can't say all countries, but many, many countries are now represented in there too. So how do you choose the entries? I mean, Every year has a theme of some kind. Is that the case? Um, not really a theme, some kind. It's it's more what leaps out from the pile that makes our editors say, "Wow, this this is a different way. This is a new spin on a topic that we would think we've heard enough about." I mean, when you think about it, healthcare is so much about the same old thing. Someone has something that has completely upended his or her life. A physician or a nurse is right there trying to figure out what can I do, what can't I do. You have a family member who thinks, will we ever be the same again? Yet, somehow, really good writers and artists make us go, oh, wow, that I, that's an amazing way to talk about that particular kind of loss or grief yes. or celebration. It's universal, but yes. it's, all, it's existential, but universal. But as you said, when you have each person uniquely going through that experience, there's a very, very different take on exactly. it. Exactly. But, you know, Caitlin, you got involved in this in a little bit of a different way. You, you basically didn't submit an entry specifically to the journal. You won an award. Tell us about that. That's right. Um, I submitted my work to the Bruce Steering Award, which is um, an award uh, welcome to students um, and faculty, basically anyone in the upstate community who could submit their their piece of fiction, poetry, what have you. Um, and that's how I got involved. So it's another. this was another competition, not specifically the Healing Muse, but an opportunity to the Bruce Deering Award where you could basically submit something that you wrote and then I guess you won it. Exactly. Correct? Yeah. Yes. And is that why she's now in, in this year's journal? Yes. Uh, we've had some very fine writers come to us through the mechanism of the competition. And again, that was something started uh, in the college as a way to say, you know what, everybody here at Upstate has a stake in healthcare. Everybody is trying to serve our mission to make life better for people. And it's been really wonderful to find all throughout the university people sending in a submission. And they're so delighted when they win or, the, or they get uh, publication in our journal. So Caitlin, tell us how you got involved in writing. You're obviously a medical student yeah. and obviously science and medicine was something that drew you, but it's it's sometimes the case, but not always the case, that people who enter into medicine have other interests. Tell us yeah, about yourself. Yeah, so I don't think I was ever meant to be in med school. Um, <laughs> I think I always was more of a, I always wanted to do writing, actually. I wanted to write all the time. Um, and actually, in college, I thought a lot about journalism. I was actually editor-in-chief of my newspaper there. Um, so I did a lot of, I guess, nonfiction writing, just a lot of news articles and all that. But I think... Um, about eight years ago, my mother passed away, actually. Um, and I think at that point, I started writing a different kind of, of, of writing. Um, I started actually writing letters to her. Um, and I think wow. it became more personal at that point. I started writing, you know, these are worries I'm having. These are problems I'm having. So I think writing for me at that point became something of a way to explain what I was feeling, what I was going through. Um, I think I probably write mostly for myself. Um, it's a little bit selfish, maybe egotistical, but I, I think a lot of the time I'm trying to figure things out just by writing. And so medicine became an area of interest secondarily in a way. Was it as a result of your loss? Yeah, I think it was because I lost my mother, because I was her primary caretaker. I think I really enjoyed the role of caregiver. Um, and I also got to see so many wonderful doctors, wonderful nurses um, who participated in our care. And I think, I think that draw just became too much for me to resist. So in a way, you found a way to marry the two, yeah, in a sense. Yeah, I suppose that's right. Yeah. yeah. And throughout your life, I would think writing would be something you will always be able to do, yeah. whether you do it as a full-time career path or not. Exactly. You see something. all these um, physician writers, so maybe I can join the ranks. Oh, definitely. I would think you're going to join the ranks. <laughs> if you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with Upstate's Healing Muse editor, Deirdre Nealon, and fourth-year medical student, Caitlin Chi. And we're talking about the newest edition of the Healing Muse, Upstate's Art and Literary Journal. Well, um, so is there a theme this year specifically, Deirdre? I mean, or you know, something just, that stands out to you? I'm just starting to put together. We, we've finished 
uh, culling all of the submissions, and we have now what the final form will be. But I haven't really sat down to say, now overall, what is the theme? When we first began, Linda, we sort of had that idea of, oh, well, maybe we'll do a thematic issue. But I think when you ask people to write for a theme, you oftentimes get writing that's not as crisp or good as when you simply say to someone, send us your best work. Yes, especially because it also it strikes me that it's not as inspired. Exactly. It becomes more yeah. kind of, uh, I don't know, functional or something. Yes, exactly. So I would say that there will be um, some some really good pieces about parents and children. That relationship always seems to spark a great deal of thought on writers' lives, and I've noticed as I'm going through that there's quite a bit of that, but there's also some humorous pieces, and it'll be a good issue. So speaking of all that, Caitlin, you have an interesting poem that you've entered, the one that won the Deering Prize, and um, is it typical of your writing, or is it atypical? I think it's probably pretty typical. I kind of, you know, I read a lot of Billy Collins and Mary Oliver, and a lot of the time I think my poetry is kind of prose-like, as theirs are. Um, yeah, I think this would be a typical piece. And it's interesting that you say that because the Healing Muse has both poetry and prose as well as visual art. Yes. But it's it's interesting to find someone who's liking to write poetry these days. I, yeah. I think it's kind of fallen a little bit out of favor, except for the few people or the people that you've mentioned who are obviously excellent. Yeah. I think it's interesting when we do it with students, Linda, poetry scares them initially. Yeah. So, you know, if you say we're going to read a poem in class, the the reaction is, oh, I don't get poetry. But when you say to them, try and write this, tell me about your mother, write, write eight lines, it's amazing what, what comes out. Yeah. Well, on that, that segue, <laughs> Caitlin, why don't you share with us the, the poem you wrote called Kind of a Bummer. All right. The other day, someone told me about the Irish goodbye, which is also known as a French exit, or something else that sounds just a little bit wrong. It's when someone leaves a party, the bridal shower, the summer barbecue, the Easter brunch, etc., without a formal farewell. Goodbyes are kind of a bummer, she explained. Leaving without goodbye can be easier. Sometimes people call it ghosting, as if a paler, more responsible shadow self chooses to stay. One that makes sure that Aunt Betts doesn't drink too much wine, that everyone signs the guest book, that all the glassware gets cleaned and sorted. It made me think of all the other ways to say goodbye. How growing up in my family, my mother always made the three of us stand at the front window to see our father off to work, waving in synchronized annoyance. How whenever I see old friends, the goodbyes stretch into minutes and accidental hours as we laugh and say, how does this happen every time? How I even forget to say goodbyes at times as classmates mill around me after lecture and all I want to do is check off the next thing on my planner. All these ways to be together, only to be separate once more. And then there's the way I hope we'll say goodbye one day. Even now, I can see your tired smile, the one that means not this again. One papery-skinned hand atop the other, a life well-lived behind us. That's how I hope we'll say goodbye. Somewhere in my mind, I hope it won't be the end, that we won't have an end, that somehow maybe our dust particles will find their way back to each other, Fearless, infinitesimal atoms bouncing around the world, fearless like we've always been. Making fun of the previews and darkened theaters and spilling popcorn everywhere. Stirring tomato sauce on the stovetop and lifting a steaming spoonful for the other to taste. Leaving notes for no reason at all except to say, it's raining outside and I love you. Wow. That's Isn't just, that so beautiful? So beautiful. That is wonderful. So Thank to you. me, that's a love. That's basically a love note. It is, right? It is. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think I. I think I said this before to Deirdre, but it's about as close to a love poem as I can probably commit myself to. About as sappy as I can get. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't call it sappy. I would call it quite, quite lovely. So I, I understand so why much. she won the award. And yes, I because she took us through so many emotions in it. You, we all have that sense of how do we say goodbye? The, those people in our lives who just leave and don't say goodbye. And then she brings it to that very 
wonderful profundity of when you found your person. And of course, there's always one person in the relationship that's always thinking about when it's over. And the other person <laughs> is usually like, please, let's not go this again. <laughs> so you really made us laugh oh, when, we were, when we were reading. Oh, thank you. Thank that's you. wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing oh, that. It's beautiful and read beautifully. So Deidre, how do people get a copy of this year's um, it's, issue? It's so easy, Linda. They could just go on uh, thehealingmuse.org. And all of our information is there. The, the book only costs $10. And I have many people who say they just keep it by their bedside and read one or two uh, chapters, issues, you know, pieces a night. And, and they just love it. And, and I have to say, at the award ceremony, my sister had come. Uh, she was out of town visiting me. And she came to the ceremony. And she said to me after it, I want every one of those kids that won to be my doctor. Wow. And so it was a real sense there of, wow, if a physician feels this much as they're going through the training, that's the kind of person that I want to take care of me. I agree. And that's actually a very interesting thing that the, that the muse reflects, but it also suggests that perhaps we are kind of helping to um, underscore, help, support, reinforce that kind of level of, of insight and feeling amongst healthcare providers. And, and I think that's a very, very big service that you're, that you're offering. I think so, too. Yeah. I mean, and it, it's certainly humbling to read because sometimes we have that sense of, oh, medicine has gotten so mm -hmm. awful with, you know, managed care, et cetera. But, no, there are really wonderful people working all the time for us, nurses, physicians, all of the therapists. Where do you think you're going to end up, Caitlin, in terms of medicine? Just in the little bit of time we have left. I love internal medicine, and I think it's probably no surprise to anyone who knows me that I really want to do oncology, um, probably with what happened with my mother and seeing what she went through. Um, yeah. Well, I wish you all the best. Thank I want to so thank much. you so much for coming and sharing this beautiful little piece and obviously would encourage you to continue to write because you obviously have quite a voice there. Thank you. And Deirdre, once again, thanks so much for coming in and sharing um, this wonderful piece with us and also all about the Healing Muse. It's just a wonderful addition My to the Upstate pleasure, family. Thank you. My guests have been Deidre Nealon. She's the editor uh, of the Healing Muse and Caitlin Chi, who is a fourth year medical student at Upstate Medical University. Thank you for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week when we take a look at acne, its causes and treatments, including some common misconceptions. Plus, we'll look at the most effective prostate cancer medications and how to handle their potentially exorbitant costs. And we'll talk about the importance of exercise during cancer treatments. If you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings on at Upstate, you can look for us on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter, or why not check out the What's Up at Upstate blog at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening.